Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 129 for the first half of April 2015. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the saga, yet again, of Comet Halebop and its fugacious companion, Part 3. This Part 3 is going to be about the Heaven's Gate cult suicide and the aftermath and continued pseudoscience surrounding the comet. To recap from the last two episodes, Part 1 focused on how the main pseudoscience surrounding Comet Halebop started. It was with a photograph taken by amateur astronomer and UFO fan Chuck Schrammick, who then took it straight to Art Bell, who took it straight to remote viewer Courtney Brown, who went on the radio that night to an audience of over 10 million listeners to state that not only was there scientific evidence that there was a spaceship four times the size of Earth traveling behind the comet, but that it meant a lot of various spiritual things. This was repeated and expanded on over subsequent weeks, along with claims of real professional astronomers about to hold a press conference about the companion and having hard proof that, as soon as the photographic quote-unquote proof was released, was shown to be fraudulent. Part 2 focused more on the remote viewing aspect and how, in my own personal and non-slanderous opinion, Courtney Brown really fed the flames and should be held accountable for her statements and what I was able to show were outright lies by Courtney Brown. Those two episodes have been leading up to this one, perhaps what many might consider the climax of the comet Halebop pseudoscientific tale, the suicide of 39 members of the Heaven's Gate cult. I debated for a long time how to really go about writing this episode to be both sensitive to the issue at hand and the surviving family members. That is, despite what one commenter wrote in the September 1997 edition of Sky and Telescope, there are, after all, more than 5 billion people on Earth, with only 39 of them chose to commit suicide. That callousness and only reminder in this episode of the larger population aside, I think that a similar linear approach to the last few episodes is best. So let's start with a brief bit about the cult's background. Before they became international headlines in 1997, many had never heard of them. But the group began in the early 1970s by Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles, who later became known as, quote, The Two, which was a reference to two witnesses spoken about in the Book of Revelation 11.3 in the Christian Bible. Applewhite was recovering from a heart attack during which he claimed to have a near-death experience, and Nettles was his nurse. The two developed a set of beliefs that mixed Christianity, New Age, and UFOs. They drew heavily from Christian beliefs in salvation and the apocalypse, and then they merged those with the requirement and vehicle to that end being a UFO. Applewhite himself claimed to believe that he was directly related to Jesus, which he preached meant that he was a, quote, evolutionary kingdom level above human, and all of those words should be capitalized. The noted ufologist Jacques Vallée included them in his 1979 book, Messengers of Deception. Besides Applewhite and Nettles using many different aliases, including Bo and Peep and Doe and T, the group also had a variety of names, including the Human Individual Metamorphosis. They reinvented themselves many times over the years, and they had many different recruiting methods. As is typical with cults, they preached separation and isolation, and insulation as well, stating, quote, to be eligible for membership in the next level, next level being capitalized, 
humans would have to shed every attachment to the planet. End quote. That means that members had to give up all their possessions, friends, and family, becoming wholly dependent on the cult. Heaven's Gate was also an end times cult. Towards the end of the cult, in response to their critics, they wrote, The weeds have taken over the garden and truly disturbed its usefulness beyond repair. It is time for the civilization to be recycled, spaded over. The cult believed that the comet was a signal about the arrival of another celestial object, a spacecraft from the level above human. They expected to travel off Earth via that spacecraft and get to heaven, which is actually outer space in their belief system. Perhaps key to this is the requirement that the soul's transfer to the extraterrestrial paradise requires final and willful separation from the human body. It's kind of hard to get around that kind of language, really meaning suicide, which means that the cult can also be considered, just by its doctrine if not by its later actions, to be a suicide cult, one whose climax must end with the taking of their own life. With that in mind, their website, which is still online, has a page entitled Our Position Against Suicide. Now, I'm not a psychologist with a focus on cults, but from my psychoanalytical armchair backed by four, count them, four undergraduate courses taken over a decade ago, the letter that's on their website really does seem to be an attempt to create a straw man about what suicide actually is, and they say that they're against that straw man while not saying anything specific against the common definition of suicide. For example, it states, The true meaning of suicide is to turn against the next level when it is being offered. Now, what it does not state is that they are against the death of their physical bodies, but rather they talk around it by saying, we fully desire, expect, and look forward to boarding a spacecraft from the next level very soon in our physical bodies. It doesn't really say anything about those bodies being alive. Now, you might accuse me of being overly skeptical here, but I do think that skepticism is justified by their other statements and, of course, their eventual actions. And the cult members would routinely refer to their bodies as vehicles, simply meant to help them with their journey. Now, I, I do, of course, in this kind of episode, have to address their suicide. It was a planned event of 21 women and 18 men, aged 26 to 72, and it took place over the course of three days, March 24th to 26th of 1997, with each subsequent group specifically laying out the bodies of the previous group. 15 the first day, 15 the next, and 9 the final day. Marshall Applewhite was third from last to commit suicide. Each person had recorded a brief statement, the essence of which was basically that they were going to a better place. Each person wore black sweatpants, black Nike athletic shoes, and black shirts. They had armband patches that stated Heaven's Gate Away Team, which was a reference to Star Trek. Each body's face and torso was covered with a square purple cloth, and they were lying in bunk beds. Each member also carried a $5 bill and three-quarter dollar coins in their pockets, which they claimed was the interplanetary toll. They had bags packed, ready to go on their voyage, fully consistent with the cult's belief, something later questioned by Richard Hoagland. The method of death was ingestion of phenobarbital, mixed with applesauce and washed down with vodka, capped off by tying plastic bags around their heads to asphyxiate. Phenobarbital is a barbiturate. It's used as an anti-seizure medication, but it's also a general sedative. 
barbiturates in general suppress the central nervous system activity. It can be difficult without very clear and very obvious statements by those who committed suicide to know the exact reasons for it. If we were to take them at their word, I think it's pretty darn clear that the UFO cult's leader saw this as the fulfillment of what he had been saying for basically 20 years, that there was a UFO behind Hellbop and that that was the spacecraft that would take them to the next level and hence trigger their willful exit from Earth. Missing from my archive of Coast to Coast episodes is anything immediately after the cult's suicide, at least after the cult's suicide was reported, which was that last day, March 26th of 1997. However, from media reports at the time, Art Bell was pilloried even as he tried to distance himself from the very controversy he had spent so much time promoting. In the months that followed, the skeptical Inquirer reported, quote, Links previously advancing the UFO story, including audio files of the November shows containing the early Hale-Bopp companion discussions, disappeared from Bell's webpages. Bell says that all of the audio files from those November shows were lost when a hard drive crashed. Despite the blatant reversal of position, Bell says he doesn't regret having publicized the Hale-Bopp UFO story. Quote, you have to remember I had several sources, end quote, Bell explains. In addition to Shramick's photo, I had a university professor at Emory who supplied us with photographic evidence of what he said was true. Now, keep in mind that this same professor, who, for a mere $3,000, will teach students enrolled at his institute to communicate with extraterrestrials. Nevertheless, Bell maintains that Brown and Shramick's evidence constituted sufficient material, and he seems unconcerned that his sources proved to be totally unreliable. Bell doubts the cult members incorporated the companion UFO story into their mass suicide decision. He says that in the weeks following the Courtney Brown debacle, the entire fraud was heavily exposed, and that the revelations all occurred two months before the Rancho Santa Fe suicides. And in a further attempt to paint himself as just another innocent reporter at the mercy of his sources, Bell asserted that the media had it totally, utterly wrong in their initial reports of the numbers and ages of suicide victims. That's as if to compare his show's unsubstantiated and pretentious banter about a massive, comet-trailing alien craft to the act of gathering details during a breaking, tragic news story. Most important for Bell, though, is that the Heaven's Gate members appeared to have been aware of the Hale-Bopp UFO debunking. The first line of their now infamous website reads, whether Hale-Bopp has a companion or not is irrelevant from our perspective. However, the cult's internet link to the Art Bell homepage also indicates it's likely they first heard about an approaching spaceship during Bell's two-month-long UFO escapade. But whether the Heaven's Gate cult members or anyone else may have done with the information presented on his radio show, Bell feels that is not his responsibility. Quote, I'm not going to stop presenting my material because they're unstable people, end quote, he insists. That's what the First Amendment is all about. Constitutional rights aside, Bell's wild Hale-Bopp tales have clearly extended beyond the confines of harmless late-night entertainment and have contributed yet another ominous paranormal myth to a public of both stable and unstable people regularly misinformed about science. End quote. So, I'll also have a link to that Skeptical Inquirer episode up on the show notes if anyone would like to read it in full. In my opinion, the problem with this argument, the one that Art Bell makes about how, hey, this was already debunked two months earlier, 
so I don't have any responsibility here. I think that the problem with that is that it's very hollow, and he has to know that that's beside the point. All you have to do is put the idea out there, and then no matter how much it's debunked, especially when you yourself are backing it up even later after another part of the claim was proved to be fraudulent, then there will still be people who think that it's real, and they're going to invent new conspiracies to support it. Remember, Art said this the night that he booted Courtney Brown from his program. I am still as angry as I was at the beginning at the uh, response uh, to Chuck Schrammick's photograph. Poor Chuck, who simply rendered up a photograph and said, hey, what's this? And we put it up on the webpage. And um, uh, the, um, uh, the rest of the amateur uh, community, including uh, Mr. Hale of Hale Bop and uh, Mr. Sipes and others, just came down on him like a ton of bricks. Like a ton of bricks, yeah. I, I don't change my feelings about that, that reaction. Well, one that was two months before the suicides. I think that Art has to know his audience better than that, to think that all because one part of the group of claims was debunked, that his audience is suddenly going to disbelieve the rest of it. It's uh, Coast to Coast is a conspiracy-mongering show. I mean, really, come on. With that in mind, I still don't think that we're ever going to really know if there was an absolute, direct cause and effect here. I mean, yeah, sure, we can think probably, but you know, as good skeptics, without that definite stated link, it is kind of hard to say for certain. It's pretty clear that the cult knew of Art Bell's guests' claims. It's pretty clear from their mythology that this was pretty much what they were looking for as their conveyance to a higher plane. Whether Applewhite just got sick of the thing and used it as a trigger, or whether he really believed it is almost beside the point. In my opinion, Art Bell and his guests deserve at least some responsibility in their deaths. How much responsibility, and how much for each person, is up to each of us to decide for ourselves. With the discussion of Heaven's Gate fairly complete, there is still more to discuss about the pseudoscience surrounding Hale-Bopp, mainly what continued to happen. Among other guests that Art Bell, for some reason, continued to have on espousing pseudoscience about Comet Hale-Bopp, the infamous Richard C. Hoagland made at least one appearance. After all, it, it is kind of hard to swing an astronomy conspiracy and not hit Richard Hoagland at some point. Nearly a month after the cult suicide, Richard was on, and he stated, We have grave suspicions that these people are, did not commit suicide. The reason that Richard gave for this uh, apparent uh, suicidedness of the cult was that the government wanted a mass suicide in order to squash investigation and public interest into UFOs. To me, this proves, along with other examples, that, again, in my opinion, there is absolutely no tragedy so small, large, sad, or unfortunate that Richard Hoagland will not take advantage of it for his own gain. As is evidence, Richard went on one of his four primary methods of argument, anomaly hunting. He pointed out, A, that a source told him that the cult leader was a government agent, B, that these people's belief was that there was a physical transition, but that had nothing to do with suicide, so why should there have been a suicide? C, claims that the uniform included a tetrahedral triangle thing. D, they had backpacks packed. Why would you pack something if you're going to commit suicide? E, did the coroner look for needle pricks? And F, the deaths occurred at 33 degrees north latitude. 
For clarification, for those of you who are listening and are fortunate enough not to know the ins and outs of Richard Hoagland's mythology, the tetrahedral triangle fits into his hyperdimensional physics thing, where you have a pyramid inscribed in a sphere to channel energy from higher dimension stuff. Uh, The patch that he's talking about is, as I mentioned earlier, the Heaven's Gate Away Team patch, proving that you don't have to be Richard Hoagland to use Star Trek references. The 33 Degrees has nothing to do with his fake physics, but he claims that it has more to do with secret societies. And, for the record, the mansion in which the cult members committed suicide was at 32.84 degrees north latitude. For a completely different set of mythologies, some Christian sects and cults believed that the comet heralded the end times, mostly because of its very close uh, proximity in time to the turn of the millennium, and various millennium cults were gearing up in 1997 and surrounding years. Since the Christian Bible states that their deity is going to use signs in the heavens, which fit very well in with classic doomsday ideas associated with comets from thousands of years ago, people 20 years ago did the exact same thing. One example is the Bible Prophecy Corner website, which stated that the Hale-Bopp comet was a biblical sign of the approaching end times when Earth is going to be burned clean and readied for the second coming of Christ. As to why Jesus is going to want a scorched earth, I don't really know. Another website was the Angelic Conspiracy and End Times Deception. They blended biblical prophecy and New Age stuff to claim that Hale-Bopp heralded a war in Israel, as predicted in the Book of Ezekiel, and worldwide cataclysm. Links were also drawn between the comet and the pyramids supposedly found on Mars, for episode 104 for those. I should note here that both of these are reported in a contemporaneous Time article, but the websites are now defunct, and they're not on the Internet Wayback Archive. Another person to use Hale-Bopp in their mythology was Nancy Leader. You may recall her from episode 51, The Fake Story of Planet X, Part 4. She was the person who claimed that Planet X would swing by Earth in 2003, and she claims to communicate with aliens that she calls the Zetas. Nancy claimed that Hale-Bopp was nothing more than a diversion. She stated that, according to the Zetas, the comet was simply part of a conspiracy to deflect the world's attention away from the true messenger of death, the Twelfth Planet. With respect to loose ends after this three-parter, one such end is quote-unquote Dr. Lee Shargell. I introduced him in episode 127 as an example of a person who fanned the flames at that time, for he claimed that there was indeed a companion, he had pictures, other astronomers had pictures, and that it was emitting radio signals that he had decoded. It was both a greeting and a warning. And, conveniently, this was exactly what he'd written down in a book in 1993. He claimed that the warning was about a neutron pulse that was going to wipe out life on Earth. After many in the Heaven's Gate cult committed suicide, Lee Shargell claimed to be the chosen replacement for Marshall Applewhite. In part, this may be because the cult visited Shargell at a book signing, and Applewhite specifically told him that he thought Shargell's books contained messages for the cult from the aliens. Consequently, he got a lot of television and other news interviews, and he stated that he didn't care if his publicity was positive or negative, so long as his name was spelled correctly. The final loose end is Courtney Brown. Last episode, I talked about Prudence Calabrese and 
how she pretty much fell off the map within a few years, but while Courtney Brown remains banned from coast to coast, he is a repeated guest on other paranormal programs. A bit more, I think, really should be said about him. A month and year, almost to the day after the suicides, Art Bell had on another stalwart remote viewer, Major Ed Dames. Ed has been on and continues to be on Coast to Coast for over two decades. And yet, his remote viewing predictions are just as bad as Courtney Brown's. Why and how he has any credibility with the host is beyond me, and why he has not been banned like Courtney and like the late horrible claimed psychic Sylvia Brown is something that I'll never know. Ed Dames stated, Courtney didn't know that. He assumed that this was an object behind Hellbob and targeted that idea and, and ended up with a bunch of uh, uh, nonsense and spurious data, which he tried to pigeonhole into a preconceived notion. So it was, it was, it was a doomed project from the, from the start. Uh, Prudence Calabrese went right along with it. In fact, she was the primary endorser of that, unfortunately, uh, his lieutenant at the time. In his book, A Decade Later, Remote Viewing, The Science and Theory of Non-Physical Perception, Courtney wrote this, quote, After my final appearance on this talk show host's program in January 1997, a former military remote viewer returned to the talk show host's radio program, claiming that our original remote viewing data were not collected properly. He then discussed how his own group of remote viewers had collected their own data, this time done properly, involving the Hale-Bopp Comet, and how he made the frightening announcement that the comet was carrying a plant pathogen bomb designed by aliens that was going to drop on Africa and wipe out all plant life. He also began to market a remote viewing instruction kit. Strangely, to me, given my past with this radio host, the talk show host did not seem interested in forcefully challenging the predictions of planetary disaster made by this former military remote viewer. Instead, the host seemed to enthusiastically support this guest. I am not accusing the talk show host of anything illegal or immoral. I simply did not understand why he would challenge one guest more than another. Nonetheless, it was clear that the talk show host felt the former military remote viewer was an interesting guest to have on his show. End quote. This leads me back to his book and a very, very brief email exchange that I actually had with Courtney Brown. I emailed him about two months ago, giving my first name, and saying that I was working on a report on Hale-Bopp and that his name had come up, and that I would like to know the answer to two questions that I had not yet been able to resolve. One was whether he gave the name of the astronomer who sent him the images, had ever given the name. The other was if he still believed the remote viewing results of the Hale-Bopp stuff. He never responded to my second question. For the first, he referred me to the foreword to his 2005 book where the previous quote came from, for it's freely available on his website, at least the foreword and first chapter. Pages 19 to 28, or XIX to XXVIII, of the foreword discusses the saga under the rather innocuous heading, A Note of Caution Regarding the Media. I'm not going to belabor all ten pages in this episode, for I think that he probably got enough of Courtney in the last one. Suffice to say, some of the highlights are that he never refers to anyone who is still living in that section of the book by name. It's always the talk show host, a person whose identity I did not know with any confidence, as opposed to the top 10 university astronomer, and the webmaster. 
That would be Art Bell, the mysterious person that I have my own doubts as to the existence of, and Prudence Calabrese. But as I said, he does not name them. Courtney pretty much says what he did in that long clip that I played in part one. He pretty much just defends himself. He says that he only gave Art the photos out of duress and because he was told that they would not be released by Art. He did so because Art asked him if there was anything that he could do to help Chuck Schrammick, who was getting a lot of heat at the time. Courtney wrote, We, and the Institute, thought that there was a clear verbal agreement between myself and the talk show host, later disputed, that the images were not to be released to the public. It is important to emphasize that I was very wrong to think that a media personality would not release the photos to the public indefinitely. Courtney also wrote, The astronomer from the University of Hawaii who took the photos that were manipulated appeared in his writings to be quite upset with me, which dismayed me deeply, since it was obvious that, one, I always said the photos were not ours and that I did not know their origin, and again, two, I never released the photos to the public in the first place. About Heaven's Gate, Courtney wrote, Neither the radio talk show host nor anyone else outside of that group led those people to commit suicide. Indeed, their aging fanatical leader was probably on the lookout for an opportunity to wrap up his adventure into cult worship without having to tell his band of loyal castrati that it was a big mistake. In general, the media acted responsibly and fairly by not associating myself or the Farsight Institute with this group or that terrible event. Courtney ends the foreword to his 2005 book by pointing out that it has been his retreat from the media that let the Farsight Institute thrive to where it is now, or was then back in 2005, and he cautions people that if they conduct controversial research, they should keep their heads low. While this would seem to run contrary to some of his recent media appearances and publicity-seeking with his September 11, 2001 terrorist attack stuff, it certainly is something that I think he learned the hard way, and perhaps he needs to learn again. By way of starting to wrap this up, for the last three episodes, including this one, I've tried to take you on a journey from two decades ago. It's one of, well, pretty much the only cases where we can point to that classic little bit of astronomy pseudoscience probably leading to the death of 39 people. Most other pseudoscience that I address on this podcast and in my blog and other venues deals with fringe topics. They seem benign, but most of the time you wonder why anyone would really believe this stuff. You laugh at the silliness. Hopefully you learn a little bit of astronomy or geology or physics along the way as I explain some of the easier ways to debunk it. And then you eagerly await for the next episode where I'll talk about something else, completely different. Hopefully you also like my crazy analogies. Everything in those last few sentences could easily have applied to the Hale-Bopp scenario with Chuck Schrammick, Courtney Brown, Prudence Calabrese, Whitley Strieber, and Art Bell before March 24, 1997. It was a fringe topic. It seemed pretty benign, a spaceship following Hale-Bopp ready to raise our consciousness, and you would wonder why anyone would take it seriously. Hopefully you learned some astronomy, some image analysis techniques, and maybe even some technology from episode 127. Hopefully you learned about the bowl that is remote viewing in episode 128. But then the 39 members of Heaven's Gate cult committed suicide. They specifically believed that a spaceship was trailing Comet Hale-Bopp, and that by committing suicide, a UFO would bring them to a higher state of existence. 
It is, as I said earlier, of course impossible to know what will set normal people off, let alone crazy people. As Phil Plate wrote at the time, If people had never claimed to see a UFO near Hale-Bopp, would this have all come about? Perhaps they might have committed suicide anyway, finding some other reason. Now, of course, Applewhite may simply have seen this as a way to finish this and be done with it. Or Shramick's photo, and Bells and Streeper's promotion of it, and Browns and Calabrese's adamant support for it, at a time when art was near his peak and courting millions to tens of millions of listeners per night, could have driven them over the edge. Again, we will likely never know for sure, but what we can do is we can look at where we are now. When I started this now very long wrap-up discussion, I pointed out the obvious parallels between current crazy fringe claims and the claims surrounding Hale-Bopp. My point is that we never know when craziness and what craziness is going to tip the next person over the edge. The 2012 phenomenon and everything that people associated with that had people seriously scared. Fortunately, there were no reports of mass suicides as a result, and to be honest, I was surprised. Pleasantly surprised, but surprised. That goes to show how hard predicting this stuff really is, and it shows the importance of remaining vigilant. People have sometimes asked me why I do what I do, especially when I was going back and forth with Mike Barra in the summer of 2012 about the claimed ziggurat on the moon. My response at the time is that it was clear pseudoscience, but by exposing it, you not only learn how to debunk that specific kind of claim, but you can also learn some basic critical thinking. I don't really care if you believe in a hollow earth. It's not going to affect your everyday life. But if you believe in a hollow earth or a flat earth or something like that, chances are that you're going to believe in a lot of other crazy stuff that could negatively affect your daily life. And learning some basic critical thinking skills using any kind of claim, such as an examination of hollow earth claims or pyramids on Mars or whatever, anything like that and examining it and working and learning how to actually think critically about it can help in general and in your daily life. As Walter Wilde wrote in the August 1997 edition of the Sky and Telescope magazine, which was sent in by listener Graham, quote, We must do our part to disseminate both scientific reality and scientific reasoning to the public. We must stress critical thinking skills, thus enabling future generations to discard the demons lurking in the apocryphal imaginations of those who would mislead and profit by ignorance. Now, just in writing this wrap-up, and it could be because I'm more sensitive at 11pm when actually I wrote this, I think that I've convinced myself that there's yet another reason, even though it's even more remote, to really address pseudoscience. You never really know when the next Heaven's Gate cult will commit suicide as a consequence of hearing something about some otherwise seemingly crazy fringe claim. For example, John Lear. He claims that there is a giant soul catcher on the moon. Could that do it? Nancy Leader got a huge amount of play in 2003 with Planet X, including telling at least one interviewer that she killed her dog to spare her the consequences of Planet X. Could that do it? Harold Camping convinced many followers to sell all of their belongings and to tell people that Judgment Day was happening on May 21st, 2011. Again, fortunately, no mass suicides, but also again, many followers were thereafter left without any money or means to support themselves, all because they believed what one, well, cult leader said. You just never know. 
And so I'm going to continue doing what I do, addressing these kinds of claims, even if they do seem really, really fringe. At the very least, it hones my own ability to think critically about things and bring disparate physical fields together to analyze a claim. Maybe you'll come along for that ride. And at the very most, perhaps someone listening may start to re-examine some of their own beliefs and think more critically about things, and who knows, that one day could lead to saving their life. As I've done for the last two episodes, I'm going to hold off on the new news and feedback until episode 131, since 130 is going to be a nearly hour-long interview that I've actually already recorded about how scientific conferences are done and how organizers deal with pseudoscientific submissions. Try saying that three times fast. What I do want to discuss is the logical fallacy of the episode, the straw man. This is high up in the class or the subclass of red herring fallacies, the red herring being where you say something that's really irrelevant to the argument. The straw man is perhaps a perfect example of the red herring because instead of sort of arguing around the issue or saying, hey, this is really popular, therefore blah, you literally make up a separate issue and argue against that. Creationists love to do this. But the example in this episode was that the Heaven's Gate cult used a twisted, non-standard definition of the term suicide, and then they stated that they were against that. They did not state that they were against what most of us would recognize as suicide. Therefore, they ultimately never answered that question, despite seeming to, and ultimately their actions kinda showed what they thought. Another example of a straw man has been in response to past blog posts and episodes that I've done exposing some of the claimed foresight of the alleged UFO contactee Billy Meyer. His North American media representative, Michael Horn, has spent many a keyboard strokes making me out to be the bad guy by saying that I have said that Meyer lied. Therefore, I'm evil, bad skeptic, I need to back up my case, I could never be shown to be correct in a court of law, blah 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 blah. In fact, That's a straw man. I have never said that Meyer lied. So Horn creates a straw man against which to argue. In fact, I've actually said that the information that Meyer has presented that other people used to say he knew things before anyone else on Earth did was actually known or assumed to be true at the time. Therefore, the claim that Meyer wrote about it first was wrong. But I've never said that he lied. That would be a straw man. By way of announcements, there are actually four in this episode. The first announcement is that in episode 131, due out May 1st, I will potentially be doing a gigantic catch-up episode full of uh, new news, feedback, and more about grants following up with the interview with Pamela Gay. Perhaps more interestingly for you folks, there will also be a small tribute to Leonard Nimoy. If you'd like to submit a short bit about what he or any of his characters that he portrayed meant to you or how they influenced you, uh, preferably towards science or maybe just uh, an enjoyment of astronomy or thinking or whatever, please send it in. You can do this in writing or you can even record it. The next announcement is that I was on episode 342 of the Reality Check, which is a weekly Canadian podcast that explores a wide variety of scientific concepts and curiosities. I was a guest panelist, and it was a lot of fun. 
uh, you can check it out at trcpodcast.com. Great website. The third announcement is that this podcast is now on Stitcher. I've gotten with uh, half a decade ago. So if you don't like iTunes or the website, but you do have a Stitcher account or the app or whatever you do with Stitcher, uh, and, and you use that thing on your listening device of choice, go ahead and subscribe on that and give me, of course, a great rating. If you're still listening at this point, 36 and a half minutes in, I'm not sure why you would give me a bad rating, so I expect four or five stars. Fourth, the fourth announcement, don't forget that you can find me online at podcast.sjrdesign.net, on Facebook under Exposing Pseudoastronomy, or me personally on Twitter as Dr. That's D-R, Astro Stew, or the podcast on Twitter as Pseudoastro. And that'll just about do it for this episode, finishing up the saga of Comet Hailbop and its ephemeral or fugacious companion. That wraps up this topic for the 129th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I really do hope that you enjoyed it and learned something at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website, podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, you can use the feedback form on the website or send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on many places, including the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, that would be pseudoastro.wordpress.com, or a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast. You can even tweet me, at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Finally, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, Tell your friends, tell your family, tell random people on the internet, and say that you like it. Tell them that they should listen too. 